Hi, everybody. This is Bill Blair. You might know me as the alien actor, and you're listening to Fandom Squad Podcast. Hey, everyone. This is going to be another episode of the Fandom Squad Podcast. My awesome guest this week is alien actor Bill Blair. He holds a special Guinness Book of World Records. Can you tell us about that? Well, hello there, Jeremy. How are you today? Doing good. Thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I do hold a Guinness World Record. It's a very long title. It's called The Most Special Effect Makeup Characters Portrayed in a Career. It's it's oh, one that's wow. been my entire lifetime uh, and beyond. And uh, where that beyond is, is beyond the human form. Uh, different aliens, creatures, monsters of all kinds uh, that date back clear into the early 1980s. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, and I definitely, like I said, I've seen a lot of your characters. And uh, one of my, uh, first thing I wanted to ask you, because my, um, my friends who do another podcast, and they do a Babylon 5 podcast, and every time they do, you know, who's the guest appearance, they always bring your name up. And he was like, hey, can you ask him? Because they said that a lot of times that like, you're uncredited on those. Is Was that a personal choice, or was that just a writer's choice for not being credited since you're on so many episodes? Um, actually, it's... Uh, actors rule that the production studios take advantage of because I actually never spoke any lines on camera on Babylon 5. Everything that I did was either a featured background or a special part, special bit. Uh, But I actually, any sounds made it seem like I was speaking was something they did in post-production with someone else. So under the rules, unless you're actually a contracted player and production says, okay, well, we don't have to pay for that extra credit on the screen. Uh, We don't have to give him credit. So a lot of my work throughout my career has been uncredited because I don't have the contracted principal roles that people look for. But it's it's been its own blessing in disguise that being in the prosthetics and even the shows that I appear as human, I can walk down the street. I don't have people chasing after me. I've got a few stories from people that did recognize me, but just as a whole, it's it's been very nice. It's allowed me my private life. And it's also very nice when I do get out to the conventions because people do recognize me and it's a chance to just say, hello, yeah, that really was me. Uh, recently, I just got somebody that messaged me on Facebook. They were watching Blades of Glory, apparently, and recognized me in one of the scenes, and they actually posted it up. Was that you I saw in Blades of Glory in the sex addicts scene? Uh, yeah, that was me. Uh, don't take it too much to heart. I'm not, I don't have that kind of an addiction. <laughs> just playing a part. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then there's the one in Friends where I'm chasing Ross around a hotel. And people recognize me a lot from that in human form. So, yeah, every once in a while, it does happen. But, no, uh, back to your question, over 90%, well over 90% of my career has been uncredited as far as the screen goes, of what you see, the top of the show, or the extra guest star credits or featured players at the end of the show or the movie. 
Wow, that's crazy. I, I guess it's that same effect. Uh, you have the unpronounced, like, you know, like Doug Jones. I guess it's the same thing. You you have that incognito because you're in the prosthetic. But like him, he's got the speaking role. So he gets mobbed down the streets. And you're like, I can just walk on by and I'll have my banner when you're ready to see me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, could, I could wear a hat and a T-shirt and everything with my name on it. I could still walk down the street. And nobody would know who I am. Well, not nobody. There might be one or two here and there, but uh, generally speaking, yeah, it's. I'm very proud of what Doug Jones has done over the years. I'm um, happy that you know he's had what he's had, and uh, the role he's had in Discovery as uh, Saru. Uh, it's just all wonderful that they brought him back for Hocus Pocus Two. His his career goes back even farther than mine did. He got started earlier than me, but uh, yeah. He's he's had a lot of great uh, parts, recognizable parts, credited parts that uh, he deserves everything he's had. Yes, yes, I know he has his own cult following as well. Now, the next thing I want to ask you, because I've, I've spoke to a lot of special effect makeup artists, too. Like I spoke to uh, two uh, Emmy Award winning Richard Red Leafs, and he's done a lot of stuff from Star Trek, you know, a lot of the major projects out there. And. I know when it comes to the different makeups, the different time consuming, what is um, what is probably one of the longest makeups that you had to endure and how long it took for them to put it on you? Well, it's difficult sometimes to tell exactly how long the makeup takes because sometimes you, you actually start out in the hair department if they have something to put on your head before you even go to the makeup chair for them to work on your face. And then sometimes you have to go back to the hair department to get some other hair piece put on after the makeup's done before you go back and get the final touches and all the final little details done with the makeup. Then you still have to go to wardrobe and get dressed properly for the character before you even make it to set. So if I were to talk about that process, the average on Star Trek, for example, was like three hours. Oh, so the the makeup artist and I would be there three hours and change before the rest of the crew would even get there ready to walk on set and have a rehearsal for the first scene of the day. Uh, if I was to try to estimate it, I would say that the average makeup takes about two hours, uh, sometimes two and a half. More specific to your question now, the longest process I ever took was for Frankenstein's monster because there were 12 individual pieces of prosthetics that had to be glued onto my face and my body, which of course was the forehead, partial facial features, the bolts coming out of the neck. We put a couple of little extra things on the forehead because Universal requires everything to be like 10% different from their original, if you wanna do it. Then there was of course the slashes on the wrist that showed where the wrists the hands were sewn on to the forearms so there was a lot of pieces to to glue on there not just one or two like say on star trek if you're doing a bajoran it's just a nose piece and makeup with vulcans it's ear tips the eyebrows you know and a lot of coloring a uh, lot simpler than klingons and cardassians or over on babylon 5 doing the narn or the uh Pac well, the Pac Mara is not so hard. It's just basically a pullover. That's one that always comes to mind because it's one of the more uncomfortable ones to wear. Uh, but the Minbari, 
for example, you've got the bald cap followed by the, the prosthetic headpiece followed by the bone on top, and then you've got the ears plus the rest of the makeup. That can take time too. So yeah, anywhere two to two and a half hours, but Frankenstein's monster, the whole process from beginning to end was a little over five and a half hours. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, doing it myself, I learned a while back. I, I was doing a uh, Frankenstein. I, I'm not surprised. I was doing it for Halloween because my fiance and us, we both love those characters and she wanted to do a, um, for our first fiance cosplay for Halloween, she wanted to do Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And I was like, okay, how am I going to do the makeup where I can do this to get ready before a Halloween party? And I quintessentially, I did my hands and I did some the stitching with staples and stuff. But the easiest thing I did, because I knew from watching, you know, guys like you get it done and, you know, seeing the different process of all talking to all different makeup artists of doing Frankenstein, how hard and long it takes and the process of how expensive to the prosthetics that people don't realize that headpiece is expensive or just that skull piece to make it flat. Yeah. I went ahead and uh, trick or treat studios for anybody out there who wants they to look like the 1938 Frankenstein trick studios makes for, I think $80 after shipping. It's a rub foam rubber mask and it looks exactly eyes and everything it looks exactly like Boris Karloff. So I basically put the head and then just blend it in my neck and then the piece going on my chest of like a the why so i kind of just blended it all in and that was the easiest way i found to do to, and it still took about an hour and a half to put it all together even using the mask itself so i totally see why that would be the longest makeup <laughs> you have all those individual pieces now the board over on star trek was a very very close second uh a lot of uh pieces that go into putting the board head together all the little hoses and different things, the eyepiece. And on that one, it actually takes a couple of people to stretch you into the costume. It fits so tightly. Um, and it's very hot. Uh, but with Frankenstein's monster, I actually got the original Fred Gwynn costume from the Munsters to wear for that character that day that I was working on that show. Oh, awesome. That is so cool. It was a project called Superstition with Elvira. And there were three of us, me as Frankenstein's monster, another friend from Star Trek played Dracula, and another friend that played uh, characters on Babylon 5 played the Wolfman. And those, so it was the three of us and Elvira for a couple of days, three days of work. And the first day, yeah, was quite involved getting it done right the first time. The second and third days went much quicker, of course, which is what happens with prosthetics. The, the more you do it, the quicker it goes. There was a series of episodes on Star Trek Deep Space Nine where I was playing a Cardassian almost every single day of the episode. So the more days we went, the quicker it got because we were using the exact same piece every time. When I change episodes, I change Cardassians. So the, the pieces are different. The coloring's just a, ever so little different. It's like, you know, humans, we all have slightly different looks. We don't all have exactly the same skin tone. We don't have exactly the same kind of uh, wrinkles on our faces, for example. So the Cardassians, well, there was, you know, several different molds that we would use for Cardassians. So we would all have those slight little bit of differences. And it would, it would vary between whether I was just a Cardassian walking through the promenade or if I was actually a, a you know, a soldier guard type character. 
I was with uh, Damar or Dukat during the uh, takeover when I'm on um, the uh, bridge, I call it still, uh, the command center of DS9. There's all these little subtle differences uh, that go into play. And just that alone, each day can take a little extra time. Uh, whereas when you're doing the same one day after day after day, it goes faster and faster. An example like Michael Dorn, when they first started out working with him as Wharf, it was taking hours. But the longer they went, they decided, well, why are we trying to make Wharf a different color of dark brown than what his natural skin tone is? Why we just don't work with his natural skin tone? So if you watch the first couple of seasons of, of Star Trek, you'll notice that Worf's complexion changes a little bit as they made that adjustment. Uh, so his makeup started going faster and faster. And on days when, for example, he wouldn't be in any close-ups, they already knew that he was just on the bridge or something like that. Uh, they wouldn't have to do those perfectly smooth edges around the eyes. So he could be done in like 30 minutes. I had an episode of Babylon 5 where I was just there working as more or less crew that day. I uh, wasn't in makeup or anything, just doing basic things. And then all of a sudden they realized that they were short of Minbari. They needed a Minbari in this one scene, uh, as we used to say, fill a hole. So it wasn't going to be close up or anything. So during lunch hour, I oh, actually not during lunch hour, that's another story. Uh, during the lighting setup, they said it'll be 45 minutes to set up for the next sequence. That's how long the makeup artist and I had to get me ready and in a wardrobe so I'd be back on set ready to go and we made it. So little things like that will pop up. So sometimes it can be done very, very quickly, you know, if you know ahead and what's exactly going to happen. But for full costume and full prosthetic makeup and everything, not knowing what is going to be coming up during the day, you've got to be prepared for everything. Yeah, it can take a time. Oh, yes. Now, when you were getting those done, did you, I know the main cast work with, you know, Michael Westmore. Did you ever get any appliances done by Michael or was it any just other, his other team members that were working for the prosthetics? Michael was very much the supervisor. And because on Deep Space Nine, anytime Dax was working on set, he was doing her trill makeup. So he was occupied with that. No, we had a special team of makeup artists that work just in the featured and the background areas of characters. The main characters, uh, Cisco, uh, uh, Ducat, Damar, uh, Quark, Rom, all those characters, they were all done in another area from us. And so Michael Westmore would come around though for example, he might come around early in the morning because I'm there two or three days in a row. And on one day, I'm a, what we call the Westmore alien because on Deep Space Nine, you just don't want people like Cardassians, Jemadars, or whatever. You've got to see this like an airport, like a way station where lots of different races, lots of different passengers and stuff may be passing through uh, on their way somewhere or they have business on Deep Space Nine. So we, they created what are called Westmore aliens named after Michael Westmore, of course, because these were basically a one and done type of thing. You wouldn't see what might see at one time and never see it again. We had some that you might see two or three times throughout the series. 
so he would come in in the morning, for example, or he would have been there late in the evening. And he knew which makeup artist was going to work on me the next day. I usually had one or two, possibly three different makeup artists who would work on me from time to time. But they would each be assigned to me the night before. So they knew who they were getting the next day. And I might be one character where they would just take pieces and parts of other aliens or random pieces that they would have. And they would literally create something on me that morning. And Michael might come in and just verify, okay, yeah, this is what we're doing. Uh, yesterday, let's see, he was basically green and brown. So today, let's make him yellows and blues. They would change the colors up. And Michael would know what colors, what location uh, we're working on the promenade or if we're working on a hallway scene or something like that. So he would know what colors would work best in those scenes, which would make me look different from another character I played the episode of the day before. That's so cool. You wouldn't you, you wouldn't think that either, you know, just a simple, you know, palette changer and, you know, a color variation would make a totally different character, even though it's the same prosthetics. I could just, you know, him having that knowledge of going, okay, he was brown yesterday. Uh just make him a make him blue and it'll be yeah. something new for, you know, in this wide shot. That's, that's and, and it also has a lot to do so with scenes fall within the the hour timeline of the show because if i'm going to show up in let's just say i'm in scene two and all of a sudden i'm in scene three they've got to know that i can change between those two because i it's not uncommon for me to be two three different aliens in a single episode in the final two hour uh series finale I actually was four different alien races over the over that two hour finale. And most of it was in part two. Now, did they tell you exactly which one? I know when you were filming, you know, certain scenes, but did they tell you exactly like, OK, you're going to be in this episode, you know, this minute, this time, this timeline in here? Or did you kind of go back and watch the episodes and go, there I am right there? <laughs> because from time to time, I would get to see a script. And I would know what scene we're on, of course. And when we start this, of course, when we go into work, I'm not necessarily going to know when I arrive in the morning what we're shooting that day because I haven't seen anything. I don't get the scripts or anything the day before. All I basically do, I might get a call sheet that says, here's when you're coming in tomorrow. A lot of times it's just a phone call that I get that tells me when I'm supposed to be in the makeup chair the next day. Uh, but got to remember, there's always the clapper board. And the clapper board, whenever they start a scene, has what scene you're in, what the name of the episode is, what episode number, who's directing, you get all that information. So I know today if we shot, for example, I noticed that we're shooting scene 18 today. I come in tomorrow and all of a sudden I notice we're shooting scene 30 something, or maybe we're shooting scene four or five. We may be shooting scene one for all I know. Then I can, at that point, put into my mind, okay, whatever I did yesterday came before or after what we're doing today. That I forget that, you know, that they still, even though I guess back then in the 90s, they still had the, you know, clappers. I don't know if they still do that now using the old clappers, which is funny. I have one of those in my my, my podcast desk. I have a old clapper for because I'm a history movie nerd and I need the old school clap. <laughs> yeah, no, well, clappers still, in a sense, clappers still need to be used because that's what syncs up your video and your audio when they go into post-production. Oh, cool, cool. I didn't know that. I thought it was just sort of a, just a, you know, a 
here's a marker sort of thing. I didn't know it was an actual, like it had like a legit role. I think it was just something they did years ago. From, from the early days when they started having, you know, sound in your movies, they had to have something that would, because you don't actually record like with videotape and other things, you don't actually record the sound directly to that medium, whether it's videotape or film. Sound is all, always recorded separately. That's why you always see somebody around with the big microphone. And that's also like when you, you can tell whether somebody's doing a low budget, you know, uh, made for internet type movie a lot of times because they'll just be using the microphone that's on the camera itself. They won't actually have a separate sound person holding a microphone closer to the actor. And you get that difference in that sound from 15 feet away versus only being directly overhead or the nowadays, at least with the wireless, they actually can fortunately mic the actors and uh, they can go in directly, but it needs to go into a separate uh, system. So the clapper, when that clapper comes down, that's when they can sync up where the audio starts in post-production and where the film starts and they can run them together. And that's part, that's why, you know, we just had the Oscars and that's why there are awards for sound and film and video editing because it's a great talent. I mean, if you didn't have that clapperboard, you wouldn't have that point of sync to where they can match those up in post-production so that when my mouth is saying something, it's not saying something from five seconds ago or five seconds in the future. We really depend a lot on them. They, they make us look good because not every take is a great one. And they actually could take the audio from another shot when they're shooting over my shoulder, even though you hear me talking, and then it immediately matches up with the person who's they're filming right now. Like if they're over my shoulder shooting you, for example, you could hear me talking Then immediately it matches up with what you're going to say. If they didn't have those uh, points of reference from the clapperboard in the beginning, they wouldn't have the exact matchup. That'd be a very, very difficult job then. So I'm, I'm impressed when they when the editors do such a good job. Oh, yeah. And I just learned that, too, you know, doing voiceover, you know, a lot of people don't realize there's, you know, ADRs where if they don't get something on set, like for you know, a lot of the bigger names, they can't they don't they rather, you know, there's a lot of stuff that they bring in sound engineers that bring in other people that are like. Just say Tom Hanks does this line and they want to change it or make a, you know, a censored version for TV instead of bringing Tom in Tom Hanks, his brother, who sounds just like Tom. Um, so he did a lot and he'll and do lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they couldn't get Tom, instead of spending thousands and thousands to bring Tom back in in studio, they'll get Jim to come in and do Tom's voice and just add it in to edit to the sound that Tom already did. Right. That's it's fascinating stuff. So yeah, that's that's the point when I you know I can learn from the clapperboard what scenes and what what uh, shot we're doing. Uh, so that I can match that up in my head with what I did the day before, the scene before, what comes before and after, so I'm consistent. So how did you come about, one thing I want to ask you, like the first thing, so how did you, you know, before you started the creature stuff, how did you get into acting, or was it, what, did you do theater in high school, or how did you get into like the acting field and start this this bug of journey of getting into, you know, characters and acting, how did that come about? Well, the acting as a profession kind of fell in my lap. Uh, other than just walking across the stage on a high school play 
I didn't get a part in a high school play, except when we did the student directed one X. And then of course I put myself in one. Uh, four of us did a nice little uh, thing called uh, Concert in the Park, a one act play. And we did a really nice job and I enjoyed doing that. But that was actually the only time I actually got a speaking part in a high school play. Uh, everything else was just walking back and forth across the stage, being one of the chorus members or something like that, uh, which was fine because I enjoyed a lot working backstage. I was learning all the technical aspects and sex construction and colors and everything like that. I did all the lighting design. So I was enjoying that part of it in high school. In college, I went into broadcasting as, as a speech major because I was in music then. I was playing in bands, nightclubs, high school band. Music was a big part of my life uh, through college and even for a period of time after college. But around 1981, 1982, life took a turn for me and I left the music industry as it were at that time and went into uh, modeling uh, for print, camera, photography, and such. And all of a sudden, somebody asked me if I'd be in a movie. The uh, gentleman's daughter was doing uh, the casting for uh, an American Playhouse on PBS movie that, oddly enough, was being directed, first time directing by Bill Duke and also oh, starring wow. Dennis Farina, who people may remember years later from Law and Order and some other shows that he was in. Uh, this was back in his Chicago days, which is where I started out in this part of my uh, career. And so my very first movie was one called The Killing Floor. And I was just there as a favor to this gentleman's daughter to fill in the, again, fill in the background, to be an extra at the Chicago Stockyards. And being one who doesn't like to sit in a crowd and just twiddle my thumbs too much during the day, I was anxious and eager to learn about this thing called movie making. So I was watching from a distance safely, not being in the way. And all of a sudden I heard one of the assistant directors or somebody talking to the person in charge of all the extras. They needed somebody for another scene that they hadn't seen before as a security guard. And I just kind of got their attention by eye contact and said, can I help you with that? And they said, where were you? I said, well, that big crowd that was over there, I was clear in the back. I could barely even see the camera. And they said, really? I said, yes. They said, well, great. Go make him a security guard. Next thing I know, they're changing my outfit, changing my clothes and my character. They walked me up to set. Uh, this was being shot at the Chicago Stockyard type area. There's a loading dock there. They walked me up. They showed me where they want me to stand. I really had no clue what I was doing. Uh, I noticed that they've got the camera off to the side and then they're, and then they have another camera behind me and just, you know, tell me to stand there and they give me the action of what they wanted me to do, which is just simply taking a piece of paper from these two actors and then pointing to the end of the line where, uh, where I was originally. And, uh, they said, okay, great cut, print it. Uh, let's move on. And so I start to move and then somebody just puts their hand on my shoulder and just said, would you mind standing in for yourself? I had no idea what they were talking about. I said, okay, <laughs> whatever you need me to do, I'm here. They said, just stand right where you were, what you were doing. Next thing I know, they're walking around, they're shooting the camera directly at me. And uh, no lines, 
just action. And about 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, they're, you know, ready to say, okay, let's do this. You're going to do exactly what you did before. I mean, they literally taught me on the, it was on the job training. And so we shot the scene uh, and the finished product. My parents were watching everybody in town almost that we knew was watching Bill in his very first movie. And there's a close up, even though I don't have lines. It's like that old fed member from the old days, that famous line. Okay, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. Yes. <laughs> what was happening? I was ready. Here we go. I didn't say a word, but yeah. Uh, my very first movie, my very first close up like that. I'd done a few other little bits and things later on uh, in Chicago, but that was that was actually the first and best of what I did in Chicago overall. I was there for two years, then I moved on to Dallas, and I uh, worked on the first RoboCop movie down there with Peter Weller and Nancy Allen. Uh, some other people, believe it or not, one of the makeup artists I ended up working on Star Trek Deep Space Nine with years later out in Los Angeles. And... Sure enough, I found out he and I were both on RoboCop. He was a makeup artist on that sh on that movie, and I was one of the background people. Uh, so the connections they just come and go. You never know where it's going to happen. But that that's where I first got started. That was the acting part. The prosthetics and everything didn't happen really until I got to Los Angeles. You know, I was working on the movie Demolition Man, and a makeup artist was looking for a teaching subject, and I volunteered and out of everybody that they were looking at that day, they picked me a couple of weeks later after working with him as his teaching model. I got a call from casting and said, we've got a request for you to work on alien nation. Are you okay wearing prosthetics? I said, yeah, I think I know who that is. I've been his teaching model for the last couple of weeks. They said, okay, <laughs> it's your call time. Here's where you go. I got there the next day. The makeup artist I've been working with comes out of the trailer and says, Oh, they sent you good. Let me introduce you to some people. And that was actually the beginning of my professional, true professional, uh, full-time creature actor that became the alien actor. Oh, that is awesome. And that's, like you said, those connections that you never knew at the time would, you know, bring you into the career that you do now full-time, you know. The uh, other question people asked me, and it was one of the early ones, it was an in-between. I was still in Dallas, Texas time. And I was asked to be in a live stage performance for Oracle Software. And they were doing three, this was way back at the early, in the 1980s, at the beginning of um, software that you could actually talk from one computer to another, it was a new word called networking. And Oracle had developed software for this. And so we were doing a stage production, demonstrating, in a sense, how different languages could communicate with each other. And on the far stage right was a group of cosmonauts and an astronaut. To our far stage left was Chewbacca, Princess Leia, and uh, Mark Hamill's character. Uh, oh, Luke Skywalker. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I was Luke Skywalker, Chewbacca, and Princess Leia. And in center stage were the three of us, another friend of mine who was playing Captain Kirk, who was a, almost a dead ringer for him. Another young lady playing Lieutenant Uhura and yours truly as Mr. Spock. And I had to do my own makeup for that because I refused to wear the elf ears they gave us with that costume. 
So I, w- I had about an hour before showtime and I went to the makeup store and grabbed some things. And I made my, I sculpted my own Spock Vulcan ears out of nose and scar putty and a little bit of white fibrous material and a lot of spirit gum. And uh, it worked. And I knew it had to be something more because we were going into the audience after the stage presentation was over. And I just knew people were going to want to play with the ears. And sure enough, they did. And it was it was fun to see some of the reactions when my ears didn't move. They thought they were just going to fall off. They were going to be these little rubbery plastic things you get at the <laughs> costume store. Um, I overheard one of them say, I wonder if those are real. So it's it's been a lot of fun. And it, it really grew from my days in uh, Chicago to Dallas, Texas, and eventually the Los Angeles California area. Uh, that is amazing. That's a great journey. And that that takes me to another question I want to ask you too, with, you know, telling the story about making your own ears. Besides that, because I know a lot of people who do prosthetic makeup, you're either one of two, you either do it on yourself or you're just somebody who does it. Because I've talked to both, a lot of people who do special effects makeup don't do it on themselves because they're used to doing it on other people and the people who get it on usually don't do prosthetic makeup on others. So that's cool. You have that mix of, have you done any other makeups on yourself for like Halloween or anything that people are like, you've seen a con you're like, okay, let me do this just for a convention. No, uh, I, I can do makeup on people. I have done special effects makeup. As a matter of fact, there was a internet series called Star Trek new voyages at one time also known as Star Trek Phase 2. They changed, they added a name. And I was asked to come play a character in the two-part episode, Blood and Fire. And about two days before I was scheduled to fly out to New York to play that role for them, they said, we just lost our makeup artist. He just walked away from us. Can you do this for us, please? Because there was these scenes I was going to be in, there was going to be a lot of burn victims and damage things and i said okay well because they i was the only one they knew they would even have any knowledge of how all this was done it was fortunate because i was a teaching model for this other gentleman i was actually learning the process as he was doing it on me so and i'm one of these people i like to know what goes on my skin i like to know what people are doing i like to know the process and so that paid off and i did all the special effect makeup well 99 percent of the special effect makeup for this uh, part two of uh, Star Trek New Voyages, Blood and Fire, which actually was a, a script from David Gerald, who wrote the original episode, Trouble with Tribbles, on the original Star Trek with Kirk and everybody. So um, it was good to be on that. Oh, wow. yeah. uh, as far as my own personal appearances and things, I rarely do any major makeup on myself. A lot of times I just use uh, character masks. I've been known to do a green morph alien, which is just the full pull-on uh, nylon, and I'll put something on over top of that. And so the alien is still underneath. When he takes the alien off, there's another alien underneath it. Um, I've sometimes used the colored contact lenses for when I'm doing certain characters. I might do a little something facial makeup, but no, I've never actually glued prosthetics to myself, except when I was doing Blood and Fire. Oh, wow. Yeah, I've I've uh, been interested so long, and a lot of people don't realize, because when I talk, especially to these makeup artists, because I'm so young, they're like, wait a minute, 
I'm glad that you you're so young, what you know your history. And I'm like, yeah, I got interested in the monsters, and I wanted to learn how you know like the evolution of prosthetics going from you know Jack Pierce in the 30s to Dick Smith in the in the 60s and 70s to you know nowadays you know with you know Michael Westmore and then getting into you know Richard Redleafson and V Neal and all of those people you know the process of the evolution of what they used you know how you know Lugosi used to put egg whites in his eyes to give white in his eyes or you know the apparatus that they would use the you know or the cotton balls and the you know the latex they would use just to give that texture or I think uh somebody told me that Jack Pierce for the mummy they just used layers of like liquid latex and and flour that would just put on uh Carlos face they would just do flour and then liquid latex flour liquid latex to give that let it dry and that would give that texture of the dried and they took took like I think like four hours for them to just basically peel off the layers after the after the film of the mummy and so I love that process because I've always been a, a fan of the behind the scenes and I was like I want to learn how to do that so as a little kid you're not like okay I I didn't have those opportunities until I was 15 and met uh Roy Woolley who's worked on the show Face Off when I met him here in Atlanta and I kind of became his little prodigy because he was like hey you're you're a young kid let me give you my card and if you have any questions and you want to you know you need you want to learn how to do this I'll teach you and he he uh studied under Dick Smith in the early 80s and so I got into that and I learned how to do you know learned how to use cotton balls and learned how to use now I'm getting into making my own prosthetics because that is a whole ball of worms in itself learning how to make foam latex and one uh there's a there's a more uh, expensive weird chemical way they have now where it's two chemicals you make into one but the way I started doing it watching you know behind the scenes of Michael Westmore making prosthetics for Star Trek taking that liquid latex that you can buy sticking it in a blender blending that easy prosthetic makeups without having to buy the super expensive chemicals that they sell now and it doesn't you can definitely tell it's not as realistic as what you have now. You got to remember too, to back to those a long time ago were in black and white. And so there was a lot more forgiveness in, you know, yes. what we did. it's just like with Hitchcock, you know, his blood was primarily chocolate syrup. It's either red. What you wanted was the consistency and just something dark and low budget things. People are using literally tissue paper with glues to do scars and bloody stuff to look like skin peeling away. There's a lot of shortcuts oh, yeah. that still work really, really well uh, without using the latex and, and the uh, slush casts and the rubber that we uh, are able to do and, and afford in the larger budget productions. So yeah, oh, it's, yeah. it's great to learn all those, those small little tricks and you go, you can go back into the, into the archives and you can look up these tutorials and things online like you were talking about, whether it's Dick Smith or going way back to uh, even the early days of Star Trek with uh, Fred Phillips. Uh, and how, you know, let's face it, we all know that Star Trek, the original series, had a very small budget compared to what they really needed. And they were getting yeah. by with the little things. Uh, and it was like, okay, I still remember, and we do this. I have a makeup artist that travels with me from time to time where we do a live makeup demonstration at the conventions we attend. Um, and we talk about it and we had one uh, convention where he and I 
the whole presentation started out. He was playing Fred Phillips, uh, and I was playing the uh, the actor walking into the makeup room for the very first time to be a Klingon, and I believe that was uh, Colicos. And the first time we ever see a Klingon, this is the first time they're ever making a Klingon, and the conversation that they have about, okay, what's it going to look like? And these are the types of things we can do because sometimes you are, you're making it up on the spot. And as the Westmore aliens, a lot of my things were made up on the spot and I'm a different alien. Now I have to decide what personality does this alien have? Because I don't want him to have the same one I played yesterday. I love how they, you know, down the line when, you know, when Michael did, you know, gave the ridges for the Klingons. I know that I think in one of the series, they retconned it and figured out how like there was a genetic mutation is how why they go from, no foreheads in the 60s to having the foreheads in the later seasons or the later you know later series so i like that the comparison of just just had a better idea for the makeup and more budget is the real reason but we have to write it in there how they got the ridges later on <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a lot of different conversations throughout the star trek world of uh where the klingon evolution came from and went to and in one line that specifically came in that one episode where Worf just says, I think if I can remember correctly, says, we don't talk about that. Yes. <laughs> Has evolved a lot from the cotton balls, from uh, lots of layers of just liquid latex. And uh, I like myself, you know, the days where we literally had to be wrapped in plaster to do body parts, to be cast, to match. Uh, to sit there and have a head cast done where they literally, they wrap your head in the plaster and everything else. You've got to have the straws up your nose so that you can breathe while the plaster is drying. And that, while the plaster is drying, you can feel how hot it gets inside. And now there's new materials where, shoot, they, they layer it on, put it on, it dries up in like 10, 15 minutes tops, sometimes five minutes, depending on you know how wet it is and what your room atmosphere is. It can dry up very quickly and it's off. It, it's so comfortable and you don't need the straws. They just make the holes for the nose and they stay put. Nothing's running all over the place. When I did the full body double for a character in Batman and Robin with Mr. Freeze, it was an entire day's project of photographing the character in the pose, then going into the plaster room at the end of the day and having myself completely wrapped in plaster strips and everything to create that pose that we were working on earlier in the day as the Gotham City garbage man. <laughs> oh, was, wow. Oh, I didn't even realize that was you. Oh, my gosh. I had to go back and check that out. If that you find crazy. me, I never spotted myself. I watched the movie and the scenes that I thought I would be in. I think I don't think I'm any bigger than a miniature G.I. Joe look. Uh, but, yeah, I'm in there somewhere. And somewhere, Warner Brothers, some in some vault somewhere, probably still has my full life-size lookalike. I hope they do somewhere. I'd love to get it someday. Yes, I know. I just like a lot of those, you know, the live casts. I just now for that mask that I was talking about earlier, I bought. I'm looking to get, you know, a a fa a death. I think it's called a death mask. Now it's uh the head plaster case you can get of uh the actors like you know Boris Karloff and stuff. And I'm getting one of those to actually put the head on to keep the shape of the face of the mask because it's literally Carlos, what they use to make the prosthetic. So it's cool, you know, seeing those face casts. And it's one of those kind of like have a 
and immortalize of that actor. Like, there's a lot. My fiance, she loves the horror too, so she wants to get you know, Karloff, Lon Chaney, Lon Chaney Jr. And you can buy those, and they also have ones of like young Vincent Price or old Vincent Price that you can get different of his career of how many different movies he did, and just those plaster casts are cool. So yeah, I would definitely have you. I'd look into getting those because those are something that are pretty cool, and I know very collectible for fans. <laughs> Yeah, there's a few things I know that certain fans would like to get their hands on that I actually I actually still have 25 going on now, almost 30 years later. But somewhere between 25 and 30 years old, I have prosthetic pieces that I literally wore on set of Babylon 5. Oh, awesome, awesome. 20 years old for the ones I wore on Star Trek. Wow, that is awesome. Now, I know there's a certain way you have to, you know, store those so the latex doesn't crumble apart. Because there was an issue I know with the the mask. A lot of people don't realize the mask from, like, the original Ninja Turtles, Jim Henson film. A lot of those foam masks are completely deteriorated because that foam latex over time, if it's not preserved properly, will just crumble to pieces. So is there a certain way that you have it sealed or... No, it's there's actually no real big secret to it, uh, and it's very simple overall. For me, I've just put them in plastic bags where I've sucked out, if you would, as much air, and I keep doing that. Remember, foam latex has a certain amount of moisture in it, and eventually, if that moisture is allowed to dry out, it's going to re- revert back to its powder form that it started without moisture. So the trick is keep the air away from it. Now, if you really want to do it all the way and put it in a display case. From what I understand, the best way to do it is make sure you've got a, an airtight case that you've put your plexiglass, your Lexan, whatever glass around it, and all the edges are sealed. And that sits on a wooden platform. And you seal the bottom of that. You drill a small hole through the bottom of the platform and you suck out all the natural air in there and you replace it with pure liquid, or not liquid, but um, gaseous hydrogen or whatever it is they use now because hydrogen can be explosive i understand but you you refill it with something that is not got the regular pollutants and everything of normal air in there and the idea is to you don't want it to be if you suck out too much air then eventually what you'll notice happens is even on a head head form that latex mask is going to shrink down and it won't be recognizable because you've sucked out everything in there so you've got to keep something in there and while i'm not the the professional at this there is a process of sucking out the natural air and refilling it which i believe is with hydrogen Um, and then that preserves it essentially for as long as you probably would be around oh wow i think i think i've seen something like that in a documentary where danny elfman you know who was the voice of jack skellington in the Mm -hmm. in the films and he has that same sort of glass container where you can filter that out for the original maquettes that they made in the 1990s. And he does that too, because he's had to, over the years, you know, get it replaced, get not replaced, but get it fixed up. And they, I've seen the process where he's had that done. And it's crazy to think that, that these things had to keep them preserved. (laughs) Do the poor man's version where I have um, plastic bags similar to like Ziploc bags, they're vinyl and plastic combination. And I literally just suck all the air out of that and seal it up. 
and I do that every so often. I notice a little air is seeped back into it or whatever, and I get all the air back out of it. And I've got a Bercari, uh face mask uh, from Babylon 5 that's at least 27 years old. Oh, that is so cool. Now, have you ever thought about, like, eventually how much it would cost, like, if you, somebody wanted to buy those from you? Or if you have you ever thought about giving, selling them to somebody? <laughs> I not even put a price on these. Uh, and yeah, I, I do take them to conventions so people can actually see them in person. They're not allowed to take them out of the bags, but they can feel through the bags what the foam feels like, the difference in the thickness between a forehead, for example, and a nose piece. I actually still have a Klingon nose piece that I carry around with me. Oh, that is, I'm glad that you did that. You do that because I was just going to ask you, like, is it just something that you have sort of wear? Or is it kind of you take out for people to, you know, enjoy like a, like a museum sort of exhibit thing? I have some Minbari pieces that I keep wrapped up tight on styrofoam heads and airtight so that those I still have. And one day, Yes, I still plan to put those into a nice display case and somebody can have them after long after I'm gone for their enjoyment. Uh, but these I keep in plastic. No, I have about six or seven pieces that I carry to conventions with me so people can see what it's like. That is so cool. Now, with a lot of the projects, I've always wanted that too. Did a lot of them, when you were done with it, they just kind of just took it off and chunked in the trash? Or did you have to like, oh, wait, can you save that for me? Or was it just a after the end of the day of a shooting, the sweat and stuff, it was just not salvageable. I'm going to have to plead the fifth on that answer. <laughs> As I said, I know some of the times I know with like costumes or movies, they're like, yeah, we're putting that in the vault. <laughs> for, for the sake of, of your question, I will just simply say it happens in multiple ways. I can take that answer. <laughs> Yeah, because like I said, I've always wondered that because I know the same thing happens with costumes, too. A lot of the times you've seen, like, outfits that people wore and, like, the dress that Monroe had, you know, in the seven-year itch and all those different outfits. You're like, where where do these go? Are they in somebody's vault? Are they – did the studio still have them? And there's a lot of stuff like that that I just got, you know, just speaking of comic books and stuff, I'm big into that, too. You know, a lot of these things, you would think these companies would keep some of these things. Like, I think – DC for their vault just bought a Superman number one. And because they didn't think about the collectability or the value of these things back when they first came out, I think DC paid $3 million for a mint condition Superman number one from a collector. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, there's, you know, the collectible value of things, you know, whether it's uh, aesthetics, it's magazines, props, uh, I know the fans are real interested in a lot of these things, and uh, I will. I carry a few of them with me to the convention. So if you ever see me coming into your area at a convention, you might want to come out because I just maybe have something with me, not just my autographed photos and everything. I might actually have some collectible history with me. You might be interested in. Yes, definitely. Now, do you do do you do any of a lot of the ones here in Atlanta or you know in the Georgia area? The uh, last one that I was at was literally just a few months before Aaron passed away. We were doing uh, the uh, an, uh, Atlanta. Can't even remember the name of it right now. Uh, was uh, it Trek Atlanta? Trek Atlanta. Thank you. Yes, I was at Trek Atlanta uh, a few years back, well before the pandemic. I think it was 2018. Uh, 
But as I said, all I have to do is look up when Aaron passed away, and it was like five months before that. And uh, we had a good time down there. And the last, other than that, I had, I think the last convention I was in Atlanta was probably 15 years ago. A lot of people reach out to you for conventions. I would definitely, DragonCon, I recommend DragonCon. They, they are an amazing show and they, they, they have, they, they very take very good care of the guests. I would recommend DragonCon if you ever want to look into doing it. DragonCon ever invites me, I'd love to come, but I am one that it's, I love conventions because I know the difference as it is between live theater and TV and, and film. I still call it film, even though it's digital these days. Uh, in that with live theater, we get that reaction from the audience right away. And then we get to say hello to them in the green room after the stage show is over. With TV and film, I don't get to see these people. I, you know, un Unless we're doing a sitcom. If we're doing a live sitcom like Big Bang Theory or Friends or something like that, where we're on a stage with a live audience, we're getting that, but we don't get the green room afterwards. We just get their reactions to all the jokes and everything. Uh, but with like Star Trek and everything, the only chance I get to meet the people that have been watching the shows is when I go to the conventions. And that's my main reason. I love to go to the conventions because it's my chance to say thank you to everybody that's watched these shows that have given me such a wonderful career and playing all these aliens and all the different characters that I play on television. Because if people don't watch the shows, we know what happens. The shows get canceled. Actors have to find another job, you know, and fortunately, a lot of us do. But there's a lot of people that that was their show. That was their shot. And when that show ended, they never got their career going again. I'm glad I haven't been one of those that people have, have kept me going for a long time. And it's because you watch these shows that I get to work on. So right now, here and there, I say thank you to everybody for watching. Um, I'm glad you've enjoyed the shows and uh, have kept me working all those years. So it's it's a real blessing to be able to get out to the to the conventions where these people, the fans, come out. And it's not about the autograph sales. It's not about you know it's, it, anything like that. I'm there primarily because I love saying thank you. I love greeting the fans. I love the Q&A. It's just like what we're doing here right now. I love to talk to people. I love to answer the questions and, and tell the stories that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Thank you so much for saying that, because I know a lot of times some people think that, you know, the conventions are just for, you know, they need some money. They're hard on time to come autographs. But that seeing you know, seeing that part of, you know, you want it to come to, you know, for to give the thank you. And I'm glad, you know, hearing that message. Thank you for that. And I'm glad to have you on. That's why I bring people like you on to you know, talk and, you know, get the exposure that, you know, you deserve for working all these things that you can get. Because a lot of people, like you said, they know your work, but they don't know you. And I bring people like you on to, you know, people get to know you. So when you go to conventions, they're like, oh, wait, I heard you on this podcast. I seen you. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to support you by buying something from your booth, you know. Well, anybody that wants to learn more about me, can of course, look me up on my website. It's called alienactor.com just like it sounds. And if for some reason that doesn't seem to be working for you, just go to your favorite search engine, whether it's Google, Bing, uh, Safari, wherever you happen to go, uh, and just type in Bill Blair and then the word actor after it. If you don't put in the word actor after my name, you may end up getting that police chief out of Toronto that was in trouble a little while back. And no, I'm not him. Um, the police are not looking for me as far as I know. 
but Alien Actor always works. And you can find me on Facebook, on uh, Instagram, I'm on Twitter. I'm here on Skype. I'm happy. I'm always happy to make new friends, greet people. Uh, if you've got something you want to ask me, just hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, type me a message. I'll answer it for you if I can. If I can't, I'll figure out how to get the answer for you. Awesome. Thank you so much. And they will definitely will put show notes and all that for you as well. If people are interested in having me come to their conventions, there is a space. If you go on my website, alienactor.com, there is a place there you can message and book me. You would be booking me directly. Uh, I have not worked really with agents, uh, which a lot of conventions feel like they have to go through agents to get to certain people. And maybe that's true. But for me, go to my website, send me a message. Uh, you can just even. If you can remember this, just write to bill at alienactor.com. I'll get the, it comes directly to me and I'd be happy to appear at your event. Convention, show, you know, whatever you're doing, live, film, photography, it's all the same to me. Entertaining. Awesome. Thank you for that. And like one last thing I wanted to, one la one of the last things I want to ask you too. So we talk, you know, geek stuff and fan hair because you're part of the pop culture. What are some of the, your top, I always say top three and two honorable mentions. What are some of the things that you like, you know, you geek out about that could be, you know, like cooking or no geek stuff, or what are some of the things that are your fandoms that you geek out about? As far as fandoms go, just about anything sci-fi. I mean, I grew up on Star Trek. I like Stargate. Uh, Farscape, I watched a little bit of, obviously I watched Star Wars. Uh, the new Marvel, some of the new Marvel stuff, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man. Uh, I haven't seen the new Batman yet uh, to know what's going on there, but I, I'm still an old school guy. I love Michael Keaton as the first Batman with uh, Jack Nicholson. Uh, yes. I'm in, that, <laughs> I'm in that age group that I, I reflect a lot more with the stuff that I grew up with. And that's where people are right now. They're growing up with a whole new area of things with new Batmans, new Supermans. Uh, we've got new Star Treks coming out left and right, right now that uh, once they've seen what's coming out now, then they want to go back and see where it came from. And that's great. And I hope they do. Uh, but my favorite pastimes, you know, uh, being where I'm at now in life, uh, find me a beach and a body of water and this boy is happy. <laughs> awesome awesome and then the last thing i want to ask you too what is you know somebody who either wants to get into being a you know a character actor or just getting into the business what is some advice that you can give someone wanting to get into doing what you do well number one it was like me be lucky be in the right place at the right time it's just like any movie star that was ever really you can look up what was their first job what did they do beforehand they were usually in a place somewhere that they got discovered. You get the right audition. You've got to be visible. You've got to make yourself known. Let people know that you're available, what you like to do, and then practice your craft every day. It's like the best gymnasts, the best Olympic stars. They started when they were young, sure, and they did it every day. But there are actors that didn't start until middle-aged. Um, I know one little old lady this dates way back into the 1970s. There was one little old lady that appeared in a very, very well-known, now almost cult movie. It was the first thing she'd done, and she was already in her 70s. Clara Peller, 
who I worked with on the Wendy's commercials many, many years ago, was well into her senior years before she became her known actor role. But there are actors that didn't start until their 30s and 40s. So even if you're if you're young, if you're old, there is no age limit in this industry. To get to do what I did, have a love, have a love for playing different characters. Uh, have a love for Halloween. Learn how to work with, with different uh, types of makeup. Uh, come to the conventions. Watch my makeup artists and I do these things and take notes. Learn how to do this. The more you know about everything, it's just like acting. It's not just the creative side. It's not just playing the character, but you need to know the business side of it as well if you want to be successful and last a good long time. So many young actors that, yeah, they, they had a very successful career, just like sports people. They ran out of high school and they made a lot of money. Ten years later, they had none of it left. You need to know the business side as well to have longevity. Uh, so to get where I am, it, it's a combination of luck. It's a combination of knowledge. It's a combination of talent and skill. There are no rules in the acting and film business, stage, live stage, theater. There are no rules. If there were, everybody could be doing it. You'd know what to do. You'd go from step one to step two to step three. It's a matter of just having the love to do it, the energy and the desire. You've got the desire, you've got the dedication, you've got the drive. Keep those three things going. And like Winston Churchill said many, many, many years ago, you could look this one up, famous phrase, never give up. Thank you. Thank you for that. Like I said, I always ask that at the very end, you know, because I know each person has a different advice for how they did things. And I always want that perspective as well. Yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned to alienactor.com for my upcoming appearances and listen to uh, the podcast here and find out when I may be back again. It's been great talking to everybody and it's been wonderful being on your show and I thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That's going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. Would you like to share our outro? We always say enjoy the madness. Enjoy the madness. Hi, everybody. This is Bill Blair. And you're listening to me on the Fandom Squad podcast, and it's been great. Have a good day.